Hi, everybody. My name is Drew McQueenie, and welcome to a special bonus episode for our Patreon supporters of 80s All Over. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? It's mailbag number three, and we're here to sing, do some letters. <laughs> Look, I'm going to sing more often. Uh, I'm inspired uh, by the wonderful podcast personality, Elliot Kalen who on the Flophouse sings frequently and is funnier than me, but uh, I am going to steal his shtick and sing a song occasionally. We uh, we did our last mailbag a couple of weeks ago, and um, or maybe a few more than a couple at this point, and uh, we had more questions that we didn't even get to, so we wanted to go ahead and keep recording because, as we said, we want you guys, the patrons, the people that support the show financially and who are there for us every month, we wanted you to all get your questions answered, if at all possible. Yeah. Plus, um, the way we look at it is like uh, if you were I never did, but I know some people who did sent letters into Fangoria or your com- favorite comic book or something when you were younger. And if you were to see it published, it was like a big deal. You like, whoa. Uh, and that's kind of what we want these to be is like uh, we want to thank our our patrons and our our regular listeners. And uh, we hope that they uh, enjoy hearing their names tossed out on our goofy podcast. And, um, you know, seriously, you guys ask us stuff that we would never otherwise discuss on the show. Um, one of the questions that we were asked both on Twitter and uh, via the Patreon page um, came in one form from Michael Horrigan, who asked, I know you've talked about a few already, but are there any films coming up that you're dreading revisiting because you've enjoyed them when you were young? You're concerned how well they'll hold up as an older viewer, and how acceptable the content is under modern societal norms versus 80s norms. This is a great question. Great question. We both talk, yeah. yeah, we both we both talked about this at length, and I'm sure that you and I will both have a lot of now versus then discussions when it comes to uh, Revenge of the Nerds, uh, Sixteen Candles. There's a lot of films that have uh, problematic themes and characters and stereotypes and cliches, and you know what we're what we hope to do is is like uh, show the perspective of how things were in, in the more tacky, uh, more socially permissive, I guess, uh, uh, more ignorant, let's say more ignorant, uh, that, and, and hopefully how we've grown and have matured over the decades. Yeah. I think, I think that's really the thing that film does is it serves as a benchmark for where we were at a certain moment. I think pretending otherwise is ridiculous. I, you know, I, I know people that believe that we should scrub whole movies out of existence and, and it's always weird to me. Like, I, I don't really get that impulse. I get the impulse to set stuff into a historical context so that you have a sense of what you're looking at. You know, I, I Leonard Malton, when I was a kid, uh, the books of his that I read were books that he wrote about uh, Walt Disney feature animation or the Our Gang series or, you know, silent comedy. And I know the Our Gang series is seen through a modern filter wildly problematic i it's really hard to watch the little rascals and not have some pretty big problems with various things that pop up however they're a part of silent film comedy history and i certainly don't think lesser of leonard malton for having dedicated a scholarly chunk of his life to them they were a part of his childhood growing up and he wanted to set them into a historical and scholarly context and i think a lot of what we do here is us taking the 80s a decade that we lived through and experienced and were programmed by to some degree and processing it now as adults and looking what, at what it did. And we're going to talk a lot about some of the archetypes that pop up over the course of the decade, including the privileged white asshole, the sort of smarmy, all-purpose comedy lead 
who can do no wrong and is allowed to do whatever he wants and bursts into rooms and is disgusting and creepy and hits on every woman in grotesque ways. And, and it was beloved back then. It was absolutely lovable and cuddly and hilarious. And, you know, I, I recently watched the moonlighting pilot and I made it about a half an hour in before I was like, wow, this would never air today. She walks into that office and he begins sexually harassing her in legally actionable ways pretty much nonstop from the beginning of that opening scene till she walks out of the office again. What's interesting is we can look at a film like 16 Candles, which has the garish and disgusting Long Duck Dong character. And but there's also like if you're going to look at a film in a fair light, there's also a lot of insightful, sweet. And and really great stuff in 16 Candles. It's not just a vile movie that deserves to be ignored. It, you know, like that's what makes it interesting is that there there is a lot of, uh, of depth and warmth in that movie. But there's also some cultural ignorance and and uh, problematic issues that we'll get to. Uh, and, you know, we're not looking to vilify a, a film that's 30 or 40 years old, but, you know, hopefully point out uh, the advances we've made. I think comedy is probably going to be where we see the most of it. I think comedy changes the most dramatically because comedy, like horror, constantly pushes boundaries in terms of what is or isn't acceptable or what you can or can't do or say. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of comedy that we run into throughout the 80s is where we we have our real stumbling blocks and our moments of, oh, man, I used to love this. Yeah, or just a movie that is otherwise perfectly fun and, and light. And then all of a sudden in Act 3, here comes a, a disgusting Asian stereotype and it's on the screen for eight minutes and it can't help but, you know, taint your experience. You know, it doesn't doesn't destroy the film as a whole, but, you know, it's those moments happen a lot. And, uh, you know, ho- hopefully uh, as we journey forward through, uh, through Nostalgiaville, uh, we won't have too many uh, beloved films uh, um, sullied by uh, by this stuff yeah i think that is absolutely fair um so let's see our next one here uh now scott did you do you even know what this is daniel kraus asked did you guys cover demon lover diary in 1980 i don't think you did it's one of my favorite docs ever though i know it's tough to track down oh i see it's on youtube now you ever heard of this movie i have not and thank you for bringing up a movie I haven't heard of on my own podcast. The shame. Well, and this is this is one I didn't know either. And I went and I looked it up and it's evidently like an American movie. Um, it's a documentary that was made by one very young indie filmmaker about a horror film being made by another very young indie filmmaker. And looking at them, they both went on to other work, um, largely low budget, marginal exploitation fare. But. It, it looks interesting. I'm certainly going to go back and give it a, tr- a try. I'd never heard of this. It sounds a little, the plot that you described sounds a little bit like a recent horror film called Found Footage 3D. <laughs> um, but no, if we miss something, like, uh, we want to know, you know, uh, please let us know. I'd much rather be uh, corrected than, than ignorant. Um, all right. What trend in 80s films do you hate the most? And what trend would you like to see come back? This is Celtic Ray Filmworks asked this. Uh, one of the things that I'm most excited to revisit trend-wise as we go through these is the trend of movies where our American heroes fight side-by-side side with the heroic Taliban against the evil Russians. Because there's about six or seven movies where the Taliban are the good guys, and they're portrayed as like these rowdy rebels who they're going to hook up with America, and it's going to be awesome. And it's just one of those cases of, ooh, ooh, if you'd had a crystal ball, ooh, Rambo might not have done that. 
that's an interesting trend. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, um, my trends with, that I dislike are pretty obvious. We'll get we're soon approaching 1983, and 3D was temporarily rather prevalent, and will detail in 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 gory detail uh, how how ugly that was. I, I uh, at the time I distinctly remember being bemused by the teen sex comedy. Even as a teenager, I knew most of them were bad films. But yet I greedily <laughs> watched as many as I possibly could get my hands on. Um, and, and we'll cover most of those things. I do not wish for a return of low rent 3D. And I do not wish for a return of leering TNA sex comedies. But one thing that I like in the 80s that I wouldn't mind seeing make some sort of a comeback. And I don't know if there's much room for it in today's superhero laden landscape. But back in the day, we had Arnold, uh, we had Sly, even Chuck Norris. We had uh, uh, Bruce Willis showed up a little bit late. Even Clint Eastwood was an action icon. And it would be nice if we could get, you know, back to that uh, where we have five or six uh, uh, different action icons. And I certainly don't mean all men. Uh, we're, we're like, you know, we have Jason Statham now, but do we have any contemporary action icons that were like the 80s, Drew? I think the closest is The Rock, who is a cartoon that is self-made. And I think that's what Arnold and Sly and those guys were. You know, we talked about the fact that when we were watching, when I was watching Rocky Three recently, I, I felt dirty watching how Sly was shooting Sly. Like, it, really, he's really into himself. And I think in the 80s, we did. We had a couple of big icons that were cartoons. And there's all, I think there's always a space for that. Uh, it really depends on... Um, what projects there are out there for them. And, you know, you look back, you look back at the filmography of some of these guys and really they're limited by the material, not by them, you know? And then there's other guys who you could have given Chuck Norris every great script that ever existed. And he was never going to be more than Chuck Norris. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying I necessarily want a return of uh, assembly line action, generic junk. Uh, but I, I like having a handful of action stars that are, you know, reliable who turn out a movie or two a year. That was fun. Even though a lot of the, a lot, if you go back and look at them, a lot of their, just their normal programmer B level movies are, are pretty dull. They're just not all that great. One of the things that I would like to see a return from, and it really didn't start until I, I think Die Hard is the moment where everything changed. And it's almost a reaction to what you're talking about with Sly and Arnold and guys that were cartoon superheroes. Um, I miss human beings in action movies, human beings who can get fucked up and who can get hurt and who are terrified. Um, and even in like Transformers, look at Shia LaBeouf running around the edges of buildings and jumping off things and sliding around it and physics don't seem to work for him. And, and he never really gets hurt in anything. And, and I think in every action film now, even if you're meant to be the standard guy character, you're doing super heroic stuff and you're withstanding super heroic abuse. You nailed one of my main problems with the Transformer, the first two at least, uh, is that wouldn't it have been a clever screenwriting idea if these are giant robots and, and fighting one another? Wouldn't it be a funny like thread throughout the movie if he's constantly getting hurt? That he's the only like malleable or damageable uh, uh, factor in this entire battle. Like, and he's like, they're terrified of him getting crushed because he's their friend. And, but no, like, uh, you're right. You know, the best thing about Die Hard is when you notice how much his feet are bleeding. That's not normal for a quote unquote action movie hero. That's what makes John McClane so damn cool is that you're, 
you know, you, you know, deep down, he's not going to die because you are watching an action film. But by making him a human being who bleeds and struggles and sweats and suffers, you raise the stakes. People now relate to him more. I'm always entertained when the hero of the movie catches a beating. And I have a real soft spot for any movie where by the end of the film, our hero looks like a can of dog food. Like, just dumped out on a plate, just ruined by what he's gone through. I, I mean, love yeah, that. Okay, Superman is great in a Superman context. But, you know, if you're dealing with terrorists in a skyscraper, it's much more interesting, obviously, to have a character who can bleed and, and be injured. I, I think that's very, I, and I, I would love to see a return to that. Are there any movies? Uh, Nicholas uh, Masalella asks, are there any movies that you've covered so far that you think could have been great if it was recast or had a different director? Like, if only Beatty, Keaton, and Nicholson had starred in Forbidden Zone instead of Reds. Wow. Okay, first of all. That's a biz- I I would see that. I would I assume that, that. I assume Nicholson would play the Hervé Villachez role. If the Beatles were in Beatlemania. Would be- <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps. Perhaps, yes, gosh, that would work I mean, better. That's a, it's, a, it's one of those one of those questions that's so tough because there are so many answers. I could probably pick one or two movies from each episode and say, you know, this is a, uh, uh, this is a great premise. You got the right, you don't have the right cast. Um, you know, stuff like that. Drew. I, I think, I think a great one, uh, where you had the right guy, but you have the wrong movie around him is man. If somebody who literally approached it, like this is a, I'm going to write that like a taxi driver had done fade to black with Dennis Christopher because Dennis Christopher was a beast coming out of breaking away. And I, I worked with him a little bit on rehearsals for something. It ended up not happening, but he uh, just watching the way he builds character. He's, you know, he's a theater actor. He's a guy with, you know, a real background and method. And he, he, I would believe would really build interesting characters. Fade to black has that potential to be that for horror films, taxi driver for horror films, a guy who is, so broken that this is the only way he can relate to the world. And yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great a- analysis. I, I think it's a, a flawed, but very interesting film. And when people on Twitter or in conversation ask me, what horror film would you remake? Uh, the fun house and fade to black are my number one and two, because I, I think that the, the original screenplays have the nugget of a really fun or clever ideas. Uh, the fun house is just, you know, basic, simple horror in a fun house at night. That's, great and i think the movie is dumb. so what if here's one what if disney when don blue said you know what f you dad i'm taking the keys to the car and i'm leaving and left the studio with the other animators what if disney said whoa whoa whoa, don't go out the door hold on what if we give you tron what if we ask you guys to go make tron and they had worked with and they had worked with Lisberger to really aggressively make that film kinetic and to make it much more of a movie experience in line with what Disney used to do before that. Um, because I feel like the biggest problem is that Lisberger had the right idea. He just wasn't the right guy to pull it off. Tron's a good example. Have a, this, this is an obvious pick, but what if Disney had called up Spielberg and said, can you help us out with this Tron movie? It seems kind of up your alley, but it's like, la- it's lacking some heart and he was free and he went, yeah, I'll, I'll come by. I'll, I'll see. I'll work on that. Yeah, it needed somebody who who really loved the idea of being inside a computer and saw the full potential. Like when you watch early Pixar films, when you watch, say, Toy Story, one of the best things about that movie is the way it takes its premise 
toys are alive. Kids, when they walk in and out of the room, the toys have to pretend they're not, and they get very attached to their children, and that's the adventure that that ends up springing out of all of that. They they take that basic premise, and then they wring every bit of juice out of it. They make sure they get every joke, every sort of weird moment in reality that they get to play with. They really think about how to make that concept live and breathe. And I feel like if you're going to do something like Tron, where somebody gets pulled inside a computer and it's the beginning of the computer era, I should at the end of it feel like I really got a tour through the popular idea of what computers were. And i that's the one thing I really miss in that film is somebody who engaged with that premise that much. And you're right, a Spielberg or a Joe Dante. Joe Dante would have been the right choice. You go into a computer and then have fun. Joe Dante's Tron would have been a jaunty, <laughs> upbeat, uh, <laughs> eye-popping. Yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. Should have got your pulse up. Like the game should have been so much fun that you wanted to go play them, even though they were dangerous. We've covered this before. I like Tron a bit more than you do, and I do remember as a kid that it was early light light bike uh, uh, races and how he escapes from the arena. All that stuff really did, as a kid, give me kind of a whoa, good adventure. There's a few great scenes. I'll I'll 100% go with you on the light cycles. I think they're a great idea. Great yeah, idea. And I, I love the score. I know that's a weird choice, but yeah. I love the Tron music. Yeah. It's Wendy Carlos. You can't, you know, Wendy Carlos was adventurous and interesting. And, you know, dude, the single best thing that's happened because of any Tron at any point is that Daft Punk score. So I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take the sequel score. What else? You have any other, like, uh, there has to be some really good ones here, like, good films that could have been great i mean you but you could say that about any good film right true it's just it's a it's a question you know within that talent pool uh, i think a lot of that comes down to guys who are up for things you know uh, david cronenberg's top gun was something that for a little while sounded like would happen i'll bet you i would have i bet you i'd be more interested in that because he would have been it would have been about that fetish for speed that he understands as a racing fan so i'm i'll bet you there would have been some juice in that movie I think some of the, you know, some of the ones that are most interesting are the ones that came really close to happening. Stuff that almost happened and then didn't because I think some of them would have been terrible. I think some of them would have been interesting. But, you know, there is a part of me certainly that would love to have seen uh you know, uh, uh I got one. James Cameron's Spider-Man. Oh boy, have you ever read it? No, I have not. He didn't I I'm really interested to see what would have happened because I think it would have been Big maybe at the moment, but it would have been a really radical reinvention of Spider-Man and in some ways that I don't like at all on the page. Like, I don't like James Cameron's Spider-Man script. I think it would have been really interesting at the time, but like there's a whole sex scene where he webs Mary Jane to the bridge by her wrists and then they have sex standing up and okay, James. I no. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Spider-Man does sexually inappropriate things outside. Yeah, I I am intrigued by almosts, by movies that almost happened. And yeah, you know, there's directors like David Lynch doing Return of the Jedi, which uh, what an what an idea that was. And I I guess it would have been Dune, a film we're going to cover soon. That you you who who would you hire to direct Greystoke? Ooh, who would I have hired to do Greystoke back then? Yeah, for some reason, I mean, I'm thinking like John Borman. Yeah, it would have had to be somebody with a good sense of the mythic. John Borman would have been a really interesting choice coming off Excalibur. Like if the studio had had a great experience with him and could have turned that around and said, let's go straight into Tarzan, do it your way. 
This is an entire podcast. We could be like, okay, what if Ridley Scott directed Excalibur? Let's talk about that for 40 minutes. And welcome, <laughs> welcome to What If Movie Geek Edition. That's a pretty cool choice. Um, all right. So uh, let's see. Uh, what else? What else do we have here? Uh, okay. Eric Ratliff asks, and this is a good one. Love this show. My question, who would you consider the biggest name to have a career entirely contained by the 80s? As in, they were unknown as of January 1980. Got huge during the decade, but by December 1989, largely forgotten. Not new to death or moving to television. Just Steve Gutenberg. I don't, I just... <laughs> this doesn't necessarily have to be an on-screen talent. It can be behind the wow. scenes as well. This is a, a question that I wish I had read an hour ago so I could have sat and really, because this is a, an interesting question. Uh, I, I mockingly say Steve Gutenberg, but I mean, if you're talking about somebody who is just of the 80s, he definitely qualifies, you know. Well, I think Brickman that we talked about last time, because, I mean, he was out. Uh, Paul Brickman was out by the end of the decade. He just Oh, did. I said Marshall Brickman. You meant Paul Brickman. Yeah, I meant because uh, Risky Business and then Men Don't Leave in February of 1990. And that was it. Like, like he never did it again. Um, the hard part is whose career kind of kind of dovetailed before the end of the 80s, because, I mean, obviously he went on to his greatest success much, much later, but Tom Hanks in a large part was a, 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 jar, a giant part of the 1980s. Uh, Joe Dante's best work was in the 1980s. Um, unfortunately in, in an alternate universe of my designing, uh, Joe Dante would be as beloved as Edgar Wright and as wealthy as Steven Spielberg. Uh, Bill Forsythe. Ah, good one. I think Bill Forsythe, uh, local hero. Yeah, because because Breaking In was eighty nine, and Breaking In was the end of his registering in any commercial sense. Yep, good one. And boy, Bill Forsythe was something else. We talked about Gregory's Girl. We're going to talk about Comfort and Joy. We'll talk about Breaking In. He is a really talented cat. To uh, not not I'm I'm cheating again, but Cronenberg's eighties output is astonishing. Obviously, did some great stuff in the late seventies and whatnot, uh, and 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 after the eighties, but. a Videodrome, Dead Zone, uh, uh, um, Dead Ringers, The Fly, uh, Naked Lunch, all in the 80s. It's uh, it's tough. And there's there's people that are so closely identified with the 80s that that is what largely defines them. But as far as people that literally work only within that context. Um, I would not. I mean, I, I don't want to add more work for me and you, but I almost want to say, Let's leave that answer as it is, and and come back to this question on our next mailbag. Maybe because I, I, it's worth looking at, and I'm curious who didn't make. I I, 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 I hate to say it, but I think that we'll find a lot of the people that we uh, uh, bring up are going to be uh, actresses who, uh, unfortunately for them, hit uh, the for their forties in the late eighties, and therefore were no longer necessary to Hollywood. Uh, you know what I'm saying. So Peter Mars asks, do you feel there's any one film that qualifies as the quintessential 80s film? It doesn't have to be a great film, just a film that for whatever reason embodies the trends, the themes, or the styles of filmmaking that were prevalent in the 80s. And I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to come up with a serious answer. I'm thinking for a minute here. See, I, now I'm having that thing where I'm like, am I choosing what I think is my answer, or am I choosing what I think the the, the listener's answer just, would just be? Just choose your your answer. What's your answer? Uh, all right, on on three, ready? Oh, on one, three. yeah, yeah, and it doesn't, and it's not the most famous movie. It's just one that we feel sums up the eighties. Yeah, all right, on three, one, two, two three, Ghostbusters, Hot to Trot. What? I'm not saying best movie. I'm saying if you want to sum up like how the eighties worked, 
Um, Hot to Trot to me is it not only does it a, have Dabney Coleman, which automatically qualifies it as one of the most 80s movies. Dabney Coleman, I'll admit, is first rate. It is a packaged comedy where it's let's just take some white douchebag character, throw him in some weird high concept kind of magic situation and then give him a shitty boss who's, I don't know, Dabney Coleman. It's every 80s comedy in one horrifying package. Okay, there's a controversial choice, and I cannot wait. Not to good, wait. just very 80s. I went with the more obvious answer, like what do I consider was one of the most popular, iconic, memorable, quoted, beloved, still discussed movies of the 80s. I almost went with Back to the Future because I think it's a considerably better film than Ghostbusters. But I think if, if forced to choose a film that I think is the most 80s iconic, uh, while I do respect your more cynical choice, I think uh, Ghostbusters would probably be the the reigning champ of of the 1980s. Although I would love to hear uh, reactions and thoughts from other people. I think Ghostbusters. I think Ghostbusters is a pretty great choice. I I don't think you can argue too hard with that one. Um, I don't know that I would say mine was totally cynical. I I think mine mine sums up the the, the lows of the 80s as well. Because I mean it, I mean it in, insightful, like cynical, you know, as a compliment. Like you, you, you know, you went a different angle, and I see where you're coming from. Like because I almost said police academy, and then I I realized, okay, well, what what is even more concentrated? Because police academy still has a the first one still has somewhat of a purity of intent. Like it was just an ensemble comedy. Whereas I feel like, okay, by the time you get to Bob Goldthwaite having been spun off as a movie star, a choice that even Bob Goldthwaite would tell you is fucking crazy by anybody's No, standards. no, I, I, I get it. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, your, your choice is both a little cynical on your behalf, but also uh, symptomatic of how cynical Hollywood was. And in the 80s, it was, oh, you're a popular comedian this year. We will plug you into a car. Like, let's pull a script out of a drawer. What's this one? Talking horse. Here you go, Bobcat. You take this. And that, like, I get that. Uh, but still. And Clue is another, I think Clue is another great sort of all purpose point at it. That's kind of what the 80s was. Uh, pretty in pink. Can't go terribly wrong with that. So that is, you know, dead smack the middle of the 80s and it spoke to young girls and young boys. Real genius because it's the nerd empowerment thing. It's the sort of sex teen comedy. Oh, well, yeah. Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club. Of course. Yeah, I think it kind of walks that that line between several different versions of the young teen comedy at that moment. I mean, but again, there's when you say what's the most, you know, iconic or most 80s movie there is. There's also, you know. Was it the politics of the 80s or is it, you know, the uh, the excess of the 80s? Was it the kitsch of the 80s? Was it the, you know, the the red scare, the fear of the I mean, there's a lot of different angles to sum that one up. You know what else might be a very iconic film of the 80s? The day after. Uh, very much so. All right. Uh, on your favorites episode, Drew mentions very briefly a couple of filmmaking books written by embedded reporters. Can you talk a bit about them specifically and uh, recommend any others like it? I can do one, Devil's Candy, um, about the bonfire, the vanities. Drew, help me out. The author was, what's her name? Julie Selwyn. And that was a case where, yeah, I think they anticipated, look, it's Brian De Palma. It's that cast. It's Bruce Willis, Tom Hanks. What can go wrong? And they gave them total access, and then every single thing went wrong. And there is a danger when you invite a film of uh, a film journalist, a good film journalist, to observe every part of the making of a film, because... Every film, I think at some point, if you're close up and you've, you're really looking at the process, every film looks like chaos at some point. 
What else? Yeah, I know you've read more of these than I have. Uh, the, the the Heaven's Gate one by Stephen Bach is terrific, and um and really can't be. I can't state how s- strong his reporting is on a story that was really really difficult at the time. The greatest of them, and it's not necessarily an embedded reporter so much as um somebody who just was there and has zero filter. But if you can, if you want to read Julia Phillips' book, um. It is there's a making of close encounters book, which is fine. There's her book, which has stories that are just fantastic and really reveal how vulnerable and I think frequently um, self played by self doubt Spielberg was at the beginning of his career. Like we think of him now as a titan, but I think the guy that made Jaws in Close Encounters is a guy who was really really scared that he was not going to have his place in Hollywood. And those films come from like real hunger. There's that's one of the reasons they are so different than anything else he's ever done. Is that's a guy who had something to prove and a giant chip on his shoulder at the time. I I think I'm maybe straying off topic, but I keep I, I want to mention it's certainly not about a specific uh, production. But you want to read Hit and Run by um, what is it uh, Kim Masters and Nancy Griffin? Uh, it's about Peters and Goober and Sony. That is a little, you know, inside baseball stuff that's really fascinating and and very uh, entertaining in a, in a Schadenfreude kind of. A way. lot of these books don't stay in print, and you have to go back and and really f- track them down on Amazon. Uh, but the good news is, because a lot of this stuff is out of print and not particularly in demand, you can find them for nothing. Um, Carl Gottlieb, for example, did a uh, book about the making of Jaws. That the Jaws log. Oh yeah, that's a and great- it's awesome yep. because he was there and has no real ego about any part of the process. He's just writing about what actually happened while they were making the movie. And it really does. It just feels like a, a, an amiable journal written by like your uncle who happened to be on the set of a movie. It doesn't, it's not trying to be uh, inside dirt. It's not trying to be scandalous. It's just a, a, a really down to earth. If you're a Jaws fan, you got to dig up a copy of the Jaws log. So I, I think that's the thing is you've got to, you've got to find books where the person has an unexpected amount of access to things. Uh, just this morning, they announced that they're republishing a book that uh, Roger Moore wrote. It was his diary during the making of Live and Let Die, and it was published back in the 70s as an official tie-in book. Um, if, you've, if you've never read this thing, it's out of its mind. It is, I, it's, I, for, I forget the name of it, but it's Roger Moore's Live and Let Die diary, and they're about to republish it. No one would ever allow a movie star to publish this book now, ever, ever. He talks about tantrums by the producers. He talks about producers being cheap. He talks about his own bad behavior. Like one morning, they, he found out that Harry Saltzman was going to pay for his hairdresser. So he throws a tantrum and smashes his toast into the carpet. And Dude, you were you were right, and you didn't even know it. I just looked it up, and it's literally called Roger Moore's James Bond Diary, <laughs> 1973. <laughs> so you had it right and didn't know it. Uh, and uh, according to Amazon, you can get a copy of the original first print paperback for $126. Oh, my God. It's, it's truly um, one of a kind. And even post-making of a film, very few movie stars are ever as candid as Roger Moore is here. It was a different age, and Roger Moore had zero filter. It's fantastic. Okay. Uh, you did mention Stephen Bach's Final Cut, which was about Heaven's, Heaven's Gate. Anything by William Goldman. Yeah, and William Goldman, same thing. It's He was there, and he doesn't seem to sugarcoat much. You know, I feel like his books are pretty unfiltered and honest and self-lacerating in places. I, I don't... Oh, oh, I'll throw in a plug for my friend David Hughes wrote a book several years ago called Tales from Development Hell. Uh, which is the greatest movies never made, which I read years ago before he became an editor slash friend of mine. And that's that's a uh, really interesting about uh, just 
now we're getting just books about movies. <laughs> Drew, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. If you could be an embedded reporter with free reign on the set of any film from the 1980s, what would it have been? Any film from the 1980s start to finish, and I can be there for all of it. Mm -hmm. And you can write whatever you want, and you're going to get paid $32 million for whatever you write. Well, I would finally answer the question conclusively and publish a book called This Is Who Fucking Directed Poltergeist. Oh, how did I know? As soon as you said that the word this, I went, he's going with Poltergeist. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, this is I, who directed Poltergeist. God damn it. Right. If I could retroactively go back and do writer. Oh, man, I, I, I hate to be obvious, but I'd have to do Ishtar. Uh, you know, it is infamous, but it's also kind of lovable and, and misshapen good and bad in, in this. It's like a yin and yang story. There's a lot to like and there's a lot to, uh, you know, um, uh, shake your head at. <laughs> The making uh, Tootsie would be another one that I'd want to follow start to finish just because of how insane that process was. And to listen to all of the various comedy writers and the various comedy brains that worked on that thing before it finally made it to the screen. All right. And then our very last one this week, it's a it's a good one. And Scott, I don't think you'll have the answer. I don't have the answer either. And I'm, I've got to go back now and find both examples. Um, Jesse Hoheisel, Jesse Hoheisel, pardon me. Uh, What's up, Jesse? Thank you, sir, for asking, how did you end up reviewing Foolin' Around twice, and why did your opinion defer the second time? I, I can tell you that it's because the first time I was uh, operating off of memory, having not found the film, and the second time I had found the film. I don't remember reviewing it twice, so now I have to go back through the archives of the show, and I thought we only did it the one time after we actually found and saw the movie. My guess is we talked about it the month uh, uh, a month that we thought the date was supposed to be, pinned the date down, found the movie, saw the movie, then reviewed it. And uh, I think the first time we're probably just running off of memory. Um, you know, it is hard. And this this goes back to something somebody asked that we didn't quite get to, which is how do you track everything down? Uh, there is no one way. It's it's There's 50 million different things you have to do to find any of these movies. Is that all the info? I This is 100% new to me. I did not, I didn't realize this. Yeah, we we evidently reviewed Foolin' Round two different times on the show, or mentioned it two different times. And we liked it more one time. I think I think the second time I may have liked it a little bit more because of Annette O'Toole's work. Oh, yeah, it's the Annette O'Toole Gary Busey terrible romantic comedy that I think she's better in it than I remembered her being because she's Annette O'Toole and she was trying her butt off back then. Yeah, a lot of times what'll happen is with especially with smaller films is that we will in our database in our spreadsheet a film will pop up twice because I will have put August 1983 and then Drew during his research will have put uh, July of 1981 and you know we just got our wires crossed on that one. I'll, I'll take the blame for that. Uh, all right. Well, listen, that is it. We have now emptied the mailbag completely. And uh, that means that uh, you guys can start posting new questions under the uh, mailbag number three under this episode. When it goes live, please start posting new questions. We'll do another one of these three or four episodes down the road. Uh, guys, thank you so much uh, for your uh, your time, your energy, your support, uh, the way you constantly tell people about the show and the feedback that you've given us. Um, it means a lot and we know you're listening and we are going to continue to bring you some great bonus episodes. We're recording some coming up this next weekend uh, and then we'll have some other filmmakers and actors and all of that coming up soon. So uh, Scott, uh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. Thank you to everybody out there who listens to the show and have a good night. <laughs>